Hey everybody, this is Tara and Andrew versus the Scarecrow Video Movie Guide. I am Andrew. I'm Tara. And this is part 9 of our 3,726 part series where we watch a movie chosen at random from the Scarecrow Video Movie Guide, do a little bit of research, and then talk about what we thought and learned about the, the movie. So we have a couple of rules, uh, the first of which is neither of us are able to veto a movie that we've chosen. The only reason we would not watch a movie is if one of us has seen it before. The second rule is the movie has to be less than four hours in length. It's good that you remembered that we hadn't really been talking about the no veto rule in the last episode because I totally forgot to mention that within the for the last four episodes in a row. But, uh, I mean, why else would we have watched Wind Talkers, to yeah, be fair? Yeah, If we had the option to veto. <laughs> yep. So, this podcast is in no way affiliated with Scarecrow Video. Um, we think they're great, but we have no other connection apart from being fans of the store and their book. Please don't blame them for any offensive material that we might utter throughout this podcast. So in our last episode, we watched The Cup, which we both agreed was a very enjoyable movie about some exiled Tibetan monks and their quest to watch the World Cup. One thing that I wanted to talk about that I forgot to mention last week was we were doing some research after watching the movie. We found out that a lot of the movie making decisions were made by using the Tibetan process of divination called Mo. And it's basically rolling dice and then looking up the results of the dice roll in a book to determine what it is they're supposed to do. And so I thought that was pretty interesting that like uh, almost all, I think the director said wow. almost all of the decisions were made using that. It wasn't done out of any sort of cultural thing or religious meaning. For a higher purpose or something. Right. It's just like, oh, this is just the easiest way for us to settle this without a lot of argument. So I thought that's pretty cool. I think that would probably save people a lot of time if we all yeah. kind of adopted where, that. Where can we find these dice in, in this book? Because uh, I'm sure yeah. I could use help making decisions. We're both, yeah, we're both pretty prone to uh, decision paralysis. So Especially the more people the decision affects, you know, it's much harder to yeah. make that decision for us, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> where I, do you want to go for dinner? Uh... <laughs> we'll just eat food. Although it did say when I was looking up Mo on Wikipedia, it did say that some of the results can require some interpretation on uh, the part of the diviners, I guess you would say. Uh, so there's always that room for more paralysis and confusion over what we would do if oh, we actually did crap. turn to that. I know. Well, it's like we need to develop a second set of dice yeah. with another <laughs> Mo, book that Mo helps you. Yeah. yeah. Momo. <laughs> Momo. Um, <laughs> Look for that soon. Yeah. <laughs> Call now, Art and we'll quality. throw in a free bundle of cap for handcrafted dice, which are going to be terrible because I'm not, <laughs> I've never carved anything in my life, so it's going to be totally imbalanced dice that you'll be using. So now it is Tara's turn to Oh, select. please let me pick something equally good. I mean, we'll hope for that, but I'm not, I don't know, I'm not, I don't want to jinx it, I'm not going to say yeah. anything negative. So I'm going to start flipping here. Okay. okay. Stop. You got one. My stomach is like, what are we watching? It's it doesn't seem like it's bad. So okay. Yeah. So you have selected Germany Year Zero, a 1947 movie directed by Roberto Rossellini. 
And uh, the Surfer Video Movie Guide says, A high point of neorealism, Rossellini's film about the decay of Germany in the years following World War II examines the rift between the fascist exaltation of strength and the weakened state of Germany and its desperate people. With no script, but with some specific images in mind, and using German non-actors, Rossellini shot this loose film amid the rubble of the truly decimated Berlin. The camera's almost indifferent gaze is substituted for a psychologically rich script, and we are left with a naturalist composition that follows a young boy through the remains of the Nazi capital, not as a character in a landscape, but a character of a landscape. Hmm. And it's only 71 minutes, so yeah. No lengthy movies about post-World War II. Just short, short depressing depressing movies about (laughs) post-World War II. It's just like pulling off a Band-Aid. Yep. I guess we'll be back after this musical interlude with our thoughts on Germany Year Zero. Hey everybody, we are back. Uh, so we've finished watching Germany Year Zero, and uh, before we talk about every aspect of the plot, we want to give our pre-spoiler rating so that uh, you know whether or not you should see this before we ruin everything for you. So our very scientific scale starts with don't watch at the low end, then maybe don't watch, eh, maybe watch, and then don't not watch the, the highest accolade a movie can possibly be given. So shall we on the count of three? Uh, sure. <laughs> I realized I hadn't really thought about how okay. I was going to read it until my lap. I'm going to go with it. I feel like that's what I did last week, so <laughs> that's, that's fine. All right, so one, two, three. Maybe uh, watch. Maybe. I was torn. Well, and the thing is, I was, tor- I was torn between and maybe watch, but then I was thinking, like, to harken back to Lilia Forever. Yeah. If we gave that one a maybe watch. I don't think we didn't. We weren't doing the ratings back then. So. Oh, okay. But I can see it going into maybe watch yeah. territory. Like it, it's, it's on that border line. It's definitely on the border. It's on the cusp. The, the movie opens with this quote that pretty much lets you know exactly what you're in for for the next 70-ish minutes. This movie, shot in Berlin in the summer of 1947, aims only to be an objective and true portrait of this large, almost totally destroyed city, where 3.5 million people live a terrible, desperate life, almost without realizing it. They live as if tragedy were natural, not because of strength or faith, but because they are tired. This is not an accusation or even a defense of the German people. It is an objective assessment. Yet if anyone, after watching Edmund Kohler's story, feels that something needs to be done, that German children need to relearn to love life, then the efforts of those who made this movie will be greatly rewarded. That's pretty spot on, I would say. It's basically a cavalcade of misery. Pretty much. Yeah. Maybe not quite as objective as they would lead you to believe. It's, it's fairly objective, I'm sure, I would and, say. and it's fairly objective. You know, it's objective <laughs> to a point, and I think probably looking at other movies that were made at the time. Mm-hmm. I can't say I've watched a lot of movies that were filmed in 1947 in Germany. Right. It is a tough thing to be objective about, especially yeah. that close to World War II having sure. taken place. So I think the fact that it is remotely objective is yeah. pretty impressive. Yeah. 
something that kind of struck me as we were watching it is how little we do see out of Germany in those years immediately following World War II. I think we all know that life was very hard and that Berlin had to be essentially rebuilt. But in terms of having a a deeper understanding, I think at least in America, I don't know that a lot of us know more about like... think about it even. Yeah. It's it's overshadowed by the much huger, more horrible tragedy of the Holocaust. Absolutely. And you don't think about just the regular people in Germany who had their lives torn to shreds as a result of the war. So that's basically what the movie focuses on. This uh, this family assigned to live in uh, this shared house with a couple other families in post-war Germany. And it's pretty miserable. It's four people, the the son, Edmund, who the story focuses on, his father, who is sick and just bedridden, uh, his sister and his brother, who had fought on the side of the Nazis in the war. Like, up until the last second. Right. Like, he talks about having basically retreated back home fighting all the way. So he was pretty hardcore. And so because of that, at this point, he's basically stuck in the apartment because he's too scared to go out and face the police. His family's pressuring him to go register with the police so that he can be eligible to work and get the card that gets them rations, I I'm guessing rations. Something like that, yeah. It wasn't explicitly explained in the movie. So at this point, the family of four is relying on three ration cards. And on top of it, obviously, father's bedridden. The older sister can't find a job. So she's essentially just going to clubs in the evening and dancing with foreign soldiers and or men to get cigarettes, which she's then trading for money. And it's not like she's doing anything dirty or illicit. She's certainly not prostituting herself. But, you know, she's just going out to dance with guys to get cigarettes. So, yeah, this family of four basically is reliant on Edmund to try and provide. support this family and provide food through whatever means he can. So he's clearly not going to school. And the very first sort of scene of him is trying to work, helping dig graves. And they catch on pretty quickly like, oh, he's not 15. Like, he looks way too young to be doing this work. It's basically just him... Not even just him. I would say pretty much everybody in the movie is doing whatever they can to survive. Which and usually... unfortunately is that often at the expense of other people. Exactly. The head guy that's in charge of the apartment that they're staying in is just a total jerk to everybody and is complaining that they're causing his power bill to be too high and, and things like that. And so he sends Edmund out to sell this scale that he has to, to try to get some money. And just in an example of being taken advantage of, Edmund goes out on the street and some random dude is telling him, oh, this scale isn't worth very much. It's junk. And so here, let me let me take the scale from you and I'll we'll trade. I'll, we'll trade you. And, I'll, and then the car pulls up and he just gives Edmund two shitty looking cans of meat. Yeah. After like grabbing the scale and shoving it in the car out of Edmund's reach. So even if he didn't want to do this trade, he's like a 12-year-old kid at most. He's not going to be able to skirt around a full-grown man. And then immediately following this scene, so there's like a horse on the streets of Berlin, and all of these adults are just like around it trying to hack off pieces of meat. Yeah. And so, yeah, the movie does a real good job of showing just how desperate and miserable the situation was there. So Edmund's running around. He meets up with this creepy former teacher of his who escorts him back to his apartment. You don't know what's going on. It seems pretty dicey. It seems shady. The guy is petting Edmund in a way that at least is not normal these days. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure it wasn't super normal then. Right. It was just excessive. 
it was pretty uncomfortable. Tara and I were just sitting there, just like, uh, uh, uh. yeah. And then it got worse when he started basically espousing Nazi ideals and showing that he's still like full on board. Yeah, he he compliments Edmund for um, not agreeing to go along with the falsified documents that his father had made to get him out of the Hitler Youth. His father, we find out, was very anti-Nazi. So the father tried to keep Edmund from being in the Hitler Youth. And I don't know, it's not necessarily clear that Edmund was, like, super on board with Hitler Youth or not. No, I mean... Um, but more just, like, he was too scared to lie. But uh, the teacher is like, good for you for... For not lying. For not lying and being part of the Hitler Youth. So the teacher is like, oh, I can help you out. So here, I've got this record. It's a speech given by the Fuhrer. Uh, here, also take this record player. And you go out outside the court and you, you find someone to sell it to I'm sure that there's no ulterior motive behind this. Like, Right. So he sells the record and uh, he gets the money back to his creepy teacher. And then the creepy teacher gets a couple of teenagers to help Edmund out when he's going to sell the record off. And then Edmund's hanging out with them afterwards. And the, the older boy shows him his scam where he pretends that he's going to sell soap to people getting off the subway. And then he just takes this lady's money that he was going to sell the soap to and runs off. And it's like, that's how you make money, by scamming people. And then he sets him up. Kind of with the, the girl that was with them. Yeah, it was kind of weird. weird. Yeah, it was definitely weird. And they don't really <sighs> go into that. Or where it, show what happened or not. Yeah, Evan's just like, oh, I think I like that girl to his brother later when he gets back home. After, after staying out all night with yeah, her. Yeah, so draw your own conclusions there. Yeah. And so the, the father is sick still yeah so when when edmund gets back after staying out all night his father's taking a turn for the worse and is just like coughing incessantly i'm sure the worry didn't help not knowing where edmund was so a doctor shows up and he says oh it's pretty bad he needs to have more vitamins he needs to have more fats in his diet first he says don't worry man, you'll, you'll be fine. And he goes about three feet away and tells the family that's yeah. like, yeah, that's... Uh, you're not <laughs> His even, diet, you're not, shit! <laughs> yeah, you're not even whispering. Like, <laughs> just... So the doctor's saying you guys need to come up with better food. The daughter, Ava, explains, there isn't really anything we can do. These are our circumstances. Is there anything you can do to help us get him in the hospital? So the doctor is able to pull some strings. So he's in there, and it's kind of better for everybody because... There's more food at home without them having to worry about feeding the father. He's getting really good food, and he's starting to do a lot better. So it seems like, okay, well, maybe things are going to be a little bit better. He's about to get released from the hospital, and then he's, he's starting to worry, like, oh, I'm, I'm going to be a burden on my family again. I wish I could just kill myself, but I, I don't have the courage to do it, basically. It's... Yeah, he's basically telling Edmund this. And this is right after Edmund had gone back to his creepy teacher and his, his teacher had basically been giving him the whole survival of the fittest spiel. The strong need to eliminate the weak. You know what you need to do. Right. He's, that's more or less verbatim what he tells Edmund. Yeah, it's not subtle at all. No, not at all. And so Edmund goes back into the hospital and he sees his dad in this terrible shape and he's hearing his dad talk about wanting to die. And so he, we see him just like stealing a bottle of poison or... Of medicine, but presumably poison. It's the father's first night back home, and they're all trying to have something to eat, and all they have to eat are these little potatoes. There's, like, nothing else, which looks delicious. In the midst of this dinner, the father's talking about, oh my gosh, I'm such a burden on you guys. It's so hard for you. 
And so Edmund hears this. Yeah, and he goes out in, into the other room and he makes a cup of tea, but he like puts a bunch of poison in it and so he brings it back in. He's like, here, I got you this tea. And his, his father is like, thank you, you know. He's like so touched by it. Yeah, and he's drinking. He's like, oh, this is bitter. That's so, well, it's good for me. And like, oh, God, it's so It was so hard, especially because he was saying, I'm glad I have you children. Yeah. I've lost so much, but I still have my children. Right. And it's not just that. He says, like, several things that just twist the knife as he's drinking this poisoned tea and just, like, brutal. Yeah. And so right after he drinks this tea, there is, like, pounding at the front door of the house. And the police are basically having a raid because we assume it's the guy. I th- I don't remember if it's shown explicitly. I think it might have been the guy that sort of owns the building. Stealing power. And it was caught. So he's trying to blame other families. So anyway, that's why the police are raiding. They're trying to find out why this power was stolen. The oldest son decides he can't take it anymore. He goes and tells the police, hey, I've not registered. I don't have an ID card. And they're like, okay, well, we'll take you down to the station and get this figured out. Ava goes back to their part of the house and notices that their father's dead. And Edmund is, takes off. Well, I think he was... I don't know, like, he he's just kind of, like, standing around, and I think he might have been sort of shell-shocked, in a way, Yeah. by the whole thing. Like, I don't know. Yeah. It, it kind of really dawns on him what happened. Right. And so they're trying to work out, like, what their living situation is going to be and what they're going to do with their father. And he's like, well, I'm just going to go. And he, he thinks that he is going to just head out and go... I guess go live with the girl that he had. Met yeah, up with. he was just, I don't know, maybe he was going to live with her. He, I don't know if you really had like a firm plan, yeah, but he was just going to like figure it out. He's 12, so. Yeah. yeah. So he's like, I'm just going to take care of myself. So he strikes out. I think he goes to the teacher and he yeah. tells him, oh, I killed my father. And the teacher's like, what? I never told you to do that. And. Don't dare tell anybody I, that I would tell you to do that because I had never said that. And he's, he's still got the whole creepy pederast thing going on even as he's like in shock at what Edmund has done and yeah I mean the teacher actually says I love you yeah and just like uh... and then he goes and he, he meets up with Crystal the girl that he had uh, spent the night with presumably and she's like oh I don't want to hang out with kids because she's like got a room full of teenage boys at that point he's just wandering the streets of Berlin and like, he comes across a group of boys who are playing with a ball, and he tries to join in, and they just were like, no, you can't play with us. So he just is, like, walking through the these rubbly streets, and eventually he gets up into this building that's, I guess, just, like, across the street from where he'd been living with his family, and he sees the that they're coming to take his father away. And his sister is, like, calling for him. They're all looking trying to find out where he'd gone to. And that the brother had come back at this point, too. And it's like, oh, it was yeah. like, no big deal. And that, it was fine. Yeah, no big deal that he hadn't registered. Just like, oh, cool. So that could have saved the family a lot of heartache. And probably provided more food for them all. Yeah. His sister and brother are there, and they're like, "Where? where's Edmund? And they take the father away. Going to the funeral, I think they were all dressed up in morning attire. That makes sense. Yeah. Then he's kind of standing around and then jumps to his death. And that's the that's end. It. Yeah, again. And and the funny thing is, at the very end of the movie, it says fine in Italian, meaning like the end. But <laughs> Andrew's like, fine? No, that's not fine. <laughs> that's not, things are not fine. <laughs> things are not fine. Definitely not fine. 
I have to say we drew a lot of similarities and comparisons to Lily Forever. This is not as depressing. No. In it, in some ways. It's not as depressing, but it's definitely not as graphic, but it was made in 50, 1947. Yeah, 55 years before Lily Forever was. Yeah, so, so if they could get away with the same things that they can now in movies, who knows what this would have looked yeah, like. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Like, if it had been made now... Would it have been, like, the original Lily of Forever? Yeah, it <laughs> would have been worse, Yeah, possibly. It, it was definitely depressing. I don't know if it could be worse than Lily of Forever, actually, but it would have been bad. Yeah, on par with. On par. Although, it runs by at a brisk pace because it was, yeah. I think, 71 minutes long. Yeah. It's not like Kronos, which uh, was like 80 minutes long. It felt like it was two and a half hours, practically. Yeah, this this moved along at a pretty good clip. Right. And with regards to it being depressing, I mean, it seems like that is kind of the whole thing that uh, neorealism was... Maybe it wasn't like what well, it was it wasn't like for, but... Necessarily trying to show, hey, things are shitty, here's some was, depressing stuff. It's but kind of a byproduct of... Yeah, well... Yeah. When when the whole point is to try and get at something true and just sort of show situations as they really are. When you're going to some place like Berlin immediately after World War II, of course it's going to be depressing. It's not going to be people having parties and, you know, having tons of disposable income and right. plenty of food. So we, sh- we should talk a little bit about neorealism yeah. to kind of explain that. Um, so, like, neorealism is this style of movie making that has a lot of basis in reality like the actors that they all cast are not professionals that's kind of one of the at least typically yeah or yeah if they're professionals they're being cast against type it's all shot as much as it can be at least in the location that it's taking place in like this movie a lot of it was shot on the streets of berlin in the aftermath of the war so it's pretty accurate depiction in terms of just like the background details and then there are no extras it's all just people from that area that are in the background so that that's just just people on the street right and uh, so i mean part of that was just to save on costs basically it was, uh, it was a lot cheaper for them to shoot on site than it would have been to yeah and that's what i saw i saw that was kind of typical specifically of italian neorealism where the cost to film in studios in italy post-world war ii were fairly prohibitive so a lot of neorealistic directors from Italy would choose to shoot on location. And also part of the reason why they would often choose non-professional actors was a cost savings method as well. Not entirely, of course, because it does help lend that sense of realism and authenticity. Yeah, I think. I but would, I think they both kind of go, they complement each other. Like those two reasons, sort of like the main right, right. driving, like artistic reason and the economic reasons. Yes, I mean, that's something that was pretty interesting, learning about the casting. Um, Like, Edmund was, like, in an acrobat troupe with his family. It's really pretty sad because he was chosen specifically by uh, Roberto Rossellini because he had a really strong resemblance to uh, Rossellini's son, who had died of appendicitis. Or was it before the movie? It was before the movie was made, yeah. Yeah, and so, like, they talk about how uh, Rossellini had seen this kid as part of this acrobat act and had him part his hair a certain way like his son had used to part it and just like oh well this kid looks a lot like my son so i'm gonna cast him in this this main role and i think they said that it was the actress that played his sister that he cast just because he saw her looking really depressed in a food line she just looks like had this really kind of desolate expression that's hardcore yeah 
So the the father as well, he was found like sitting outside some building and it turns out he actually used to be a, a stage actor. He was a stage actor for 40 years. So I think he was probably the only one who had much acting experience out of everybody, mm-hmm. at least out of the four main characters from that family. Yeah. And then the guy who played the older brother, he actually in real life came from a family of academics and they were all imprisoned by the Gestapo, including him. Yeah. So, so it's... Knowing that adds a lot to having seen the movie. So when you talk about neorealism, I think Francois Truffaut is one of the famous directors who comes up a lot. Mm -hmm. And he made a statement about Rossellini and in particular this movie that Rossellini was the only filmmaker who filmed adolescence without sentimentality. And I thought that was a really good descriptor for this movie. Something that you found that was pretty interesting was that Rossellini felt like everything leading up to that last sequence with Edmund walking through the streets was just stuff that he did. In order to get to that point. It had to be there, yeah, to, to get to that point. Like that, that scene with him going walking through the, the rubble-lined streets at the end was really the vision that he had. The exact quote was, the whole film was conceived specifically for the scene with the child wandering on his own through the ruins. What really makes that interesting with him having that specific image is that I guess he didn't actually shoot a lot of that footage is what I read. It was his uh, assistant director, Carlo Lozani, who had shot a lot of that footage in that whole sequence, I guess, because Rossellini was off dealing with the repercussions of his. He was having an affair. Yeah. Adultery. And so his assistant director basically just shot a ton of footage of Edmund walking through these streets and then let Rossellini sift through it after the fact to compose what he would out of it. One other thing we saw about the making of the movie, which we drew kind of parallels to Lily Forever, is that obviously Rossellini was an Italian director and he was shooting with a bunch of German non-professional actors. He would direct in French, but then someone else would translate that, I think, to German for the actors. And that's what Lucas Moodyson was having to do with Lily Forever, because he was um, working with a bunch of actors that didn't speak. What language was this? Well, they were speaking Russian. They were speaking Russian. And, okay. They did not understand each other at all. So he similarly had to work with the translator to try to figure out what they were going to do. Apparently, he had the actors do a lot of improvisation with their lines right. as well. One other note just about the state of Germany and, and particularly these actors, obviously food was tight, even if you're an actor in a movie. So most of the filming was done in Berlin on site, but there were actually some scenes that were done in a studio in Italy. Primarily the Berlin shots were done in August and September of 1947 and the actors later went back to Italy in November to do the studio shots, but they kind of had to sit around for a little bit waiting while the sets were done because they weren't fully created by the time the actors got into town. As the actors are hanging out in Italy waiting for the sets to be ready to film, they gained so much weight by being able to eat a decent meal every day and not being malnourished all the time that they put on a noticeable amount of weight and actually all had to go on crash diets to maintain continuity with the earlier scenes. Yeah. So, I mean, that stuff wasn't a joke. It wasn't like... Yeah, I mean... Exaggerated or anything. Well, I mean, just talking about his... uh, The actress that played his sister being in the food lines, it's like, yeah, that... Makes sense. And then I think what they, they said as a follow up to that uh, about them having to go on a crash diet is that some of the actors just like fled into the Italian countryside after shooting was over just because they're like, nope, I'm not 
going back to Why would to I that. go back? Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. That about wraps it up for what we thought about Germany Year Zero. So if you would like to get in touch with us, if you have any movie suggestions or if you want to talk about any of the movies we've discussed or if you have any general feedback for us, our email address is terraandandrewverses at gmail.com. You can also find us on our website at terraandandrewverses.com. We are also on the Facebook so you can find us by our podcast name, Fernando versus the Scarecrow Video Movie Guide. Of course, we wanted to thank the band Vote for letting us use their song lately off of the album Setting the Paces. So thank you, Vote. Check them out if you can. Find, find yourself a copy of Setting the Paces. You won't be disappointed. Don't take our word for it. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> We're going to get sued by PBS now, just like he was. LeVar Burton's going to show up. No, LeVar Burton, he, didn't you see? Like, he got... Uh, like, he used something Holy too crap. close to, don't take my word for it, and, oh, like, PBS okay. came after him, I think. We are not putting that in the podcast. Uh, uh, we put, uh, I think we'll, we'll bleep <laughs> that part out, and yes. then we'll, we'll keep, keep this discussion. I uh, totally agree. Anyway, um, yeah, so that, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and uh, catch you later, potato hags. Catch you later, potato hags. <laughs>